0: You are listening to Episode 1. Hello and welcome to What Leaders Know. It's the podcast for people on leadership journeys. I'm your host, Penny Beeston. I help people take their leadership to the next level. You can learn more at whatleadersknow.com. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Today's podcast shares a leadership journey in find emergency services and international disaster recovery. John Corkett, Assistant Commissioner, Brisbane Region, Queensland Fire and Emergency Services, is today's guest. I invited John onto the podcast to share his international experiences of leadership in the international disaster recovery space. John's experience in international disaster recovery efforts include the Christchurch earthquake in 2011, the Sumatra earthquake of 2010 and the Sumatra bushfires of 2009. John sits on the International Search and Rescue Advisory Group or INSAG, a global network of countries and organisations under the UN umbrella. John has undertaken lead capability assessment roles in USA, Russia, Singapore, Japan and New Zealand. He recently mentored China in their INSAG classification. John's an official mentor within SAR, working with teams in New Zealand, Japan, China and the USA. Welcome, John.
1: Thanks, Penny. Thanks for the opportunity to talk today.
0: I'm looking forward to it, John. I begin each interview with this question, why does leadership matter? And could you answer the question with a view to the disruption to our lives everywhere as a result of COVID-19?
1: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's a really interesting question right now. You know, the whole COVID-19 disruption and the impact it's had, it's disrupted the health to a certain extent of our society and our economy. So obviously, I've been involved in a whole range of emergencies and disasters over my career, but this one is extremely different and extremely interesting. And if you have a look the, the whole purpose of leadership, I think, particularly if you put it in the context of COVID-19, is about helping people find the clarity to move forward. During emergencies, during disasters, and, and certainly during this period, people lose their footing. Uh, they are looking for a way forward. Uh, and I think uh, Dr. Jeanette Young has, has done, you know, a terrific effort during this period in, in being able to help the community move forward clear lists of priorities that she's been able to um, put out there and that is about managing to a level where the health system can manage. She was, you know, hyper clear about exactly what she was trying to achieve. Certainly some of the messaging was quite complex down the track but that clear list of priorities and what she was trying to achieve was, you know, a, a sterling example of, you know, the need for, for leadership and, and what people are looking for. I think the other, sorry,
0: I was going to let listeners know that Dr Jeanette Young is our Chief Medical Officer in Queensland.
1: Yeah, and and Dr Young's taken um, a very lead and quite high-profile position, of course. But what was interesting is that uh, it was identified very quickly that this was um, not just a, a health issue, this was a, a disaster in the, in the traditional sense. So it was handed over, it was very much about boundaries spanning across a whole range of agencies to help us manage um, this situation. So getting back to the first question is, is it, what was it about? It, 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 that was such an important part of leadership. Because the public and the workforce and, and society in general were, were looking for how do they move forward in this um, in this scenario. And I'm, and I'm a great believer in, in the importance of following as well, because I think that that's an important part. And it's not about being subservient to anybody else, but it's about knowing your place and your role. And every single one of us has a, has a role of leadership.
0: It's a good point. And I think that we've seen across Australia that we've really worked as a community and overcome a lot of possible boundaries and, and barriers to work together, even with a united national cabinet.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's an extremely interesting period, and I'm sure that there'll be a whole lot of research that's going to be done over this period. It's very easy to criticise, and we'll see that. And of course, people can latch on to ambiguity, or they can latch on to you know a slightly different meaning on on a message. But if you actually stand back a few feet and, and try and look from out back in and say how how has this gone you would have to say that australia's managed this disaster extremely well very effectively and yes there's always ups and downs and and uh, you know slight problems and whether it's borders or, or whether it's um mixed messages or whatever it might be, but, but by and large, they're noise overall in the, in the overall scheme of things.
0: What I want to do now is move into your own leadership career. Generally, I like to explore where people's entry point was to their career. So as we're going to unpack your international experience later in our conversation, can you share some of your leadership experiences on our shores?
1: Uh, yeah, sure, sure, Penny. It's been uh, an evolutionary thing. Obviously, I joined what was the old fire brigade back in the mid eighties and uh, predominantly that whole industry hadn't changed a great deal since World War II, to be honest. It was the same old, um, manuals, um, that we used to use. It was woolen coats and wow. very little workplace <laughs> health and safety. And, you know, there was no technology. And, and in fact, many of the senior people that I joined did serve either during or, or post World War II. So it was a very different organization, very hierarchical. Uh, the role of a, a firefighter, or, and this would be the same across all industries. Mm. You know, if you joined the bank when in, in that period, you know, you were only, you know, told to do certain things. And, and obviously I, I kind of felt and I knew quite early that I could contribute more. So the whole issue around leadership. Started very early for me around about how could I do this job better or how could I help the community or how could I improve the system. So it's, it's been a really long journey and you know, the, the intent was obviously about trying to do your, your job very well. Fire and emergencies are quite a unique uh, industry is that people tend to join and then stay for a very long time. Uh, so it's been quite remarkable. The downside, of course, is is that you so often don't get that new change that you need at times by having a you know a range of new thoughts coming through.
0: That's a really interesting dilemma, I guess, in these large government agencies, particularly where people do come in based on their passion to serve the community, whether it's in uh, fire and emergency or policing or any of those community-facing areas. And I'm interested that they are challenges, but as leaders, you work through that and you find ways to for those agencies to evolve. What goes on behind the scenes for that to, to happen?
1: Yeah, it's a massive challenge, Penny, for us, because there is absolute advantages in having people who are long-term uh, volunteers or long-term staff members in our industry because you get significant experience base, you get a lot of knowledge, you know, you get that ability to pass that information on, you know, but almost from one generation to another. But it becomes a significant anchor for us as well because the way we've done things always gets passed on to the new generation. This is the way we've always done it kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, and it is a real challenge for us because we, we must, you know, maintain our relevance for the community. And we must change as community expectations have changed. What we have to actually do is almost artificially keep refreshing the culture of the organization. So a lot of industries, by the churn that they naturally get of people coming in for a few years, moving out, and you get the new, new breed coming through with new ideas, when you don't have that, you have to artificially keep reinvigorating uh, your own cultural journey and to make sure that you don't get stuck in a rut or you don't start to uh, believe in your own press and you don't move forward and you you don't modernise. So Mm. it's a a really, it's a very big thing for us because the culture itself is um, a fantastic asset to the organisation, so you don't want to break the culture, but you do have to influence it.
0: Yes, remaining contemporary is a real leadership challenge for large organisations. I imagine it's more challenging for an organisation who has highly trained personnel responding to threats of fire, flood and emergencies in our community. So you speak of a strong culture embedded in the way we do things around here. How do you keep the best of that culture while opening it up to new understandings and ensure it's meeting the changing and emerging needs of the community?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a really, um, interesting point, Penny, because, I mean, first of all, le- leadership and hard decisions, um, or difficult problems don't occur just at, at the operational level. They also occur at uh, the governmental level. So there's a, there's a lot of common themes, but it's more about the, the context. If we look at QFIS as a, as a whole, or an emergency service sector as a, a whole, it's, it's a lot more than command and control. So you're working in what they call high three operations. So high reliance on technology, you know, such as comms and info, high intensity, uh, time pressures and urgency and, and high reliability, which means if you make errors, you know, there's a high level of risk. So when you have the traditional uniform, quasi military hierarchical organization is actually really effective during those types of incidents. You, everybody knows their boundaries. Everybody understands rank structure. The police do this, firefighters do this, ambulance, paramedics do that. We've got SES there, etc., etc. So everybody understands. But what's happened over a period of time is that we've moved from that and you're now moving into these bigger crises or, or disasters. So much more complex scenarios where that hierarchical mindset is not working. So from our perspective, it's actually been quite difficult because we train our people up to a certain level to be uh, very rote in their approach. Um, this is what you do in this situation. But when we come across these simultaneous type disasters or crises, then it's, it's a lot more complex. You've got independent interdependencies. You've got need for much greater coordination, public and private sector involved. We, so we've had to try and train and influence our people to switch off their, their hierarchical approach and move into a much broader leadership role that's more about trying to bring the social, cultural, technical all together, different government departments. We see this will move people from mid-level to more senior senior levels. It's about how you communicate and about how you talk and it's about how you, you, you problem solve.
0: When I hear you speaking about the interoperability of all of those emergency response agencies having to work together, it naturally leads me to ask you what drew you to the international disaster recovery experience, because I imagine that that is absolutely interoperability on steroids.
1: Yeah, that's been an area that I was I was interested in earlier on, and I, and I took a couple of opportunities, and then um, you know continued along that, that space. I guess for me, there, there was a couple of parts for it. One one was obviously to support affected communities. I've always had an interest in people and the, the different cultures and the different religions and the, the different expectations from, from various countries. So I found it exceptionally interesting, you know, the different norms. And uh, I could sit back and, and watch It became a really good learning opportunity for me. So one of my first first situations that I was faced with in Sumatra it was where you really recognise that there's lots of different ways to get the same outcome Mm -hmm. and I think from a sometimes from a western perspective there's a level of arrogance that uh You know the way we do it is is the right way, and it, working across borders, or particularly in the international environment, makes you really understand. There's lots of different ways of of doing things. Well, I worked with a, a fellow who had um, worked a lot right across the world. You know, from Uganda to Rwanda, and during the conflicts in Serbia and, and a whole range of other areas. And it was incredibly interesting. And I, I said to him at one point, "What makes uh, somebody good on deployment or a good humanitarian actor?" And, and he said. It's, it's pretty simple," he said, whoever goes into this business must have a high level of tolerance to ambiguity. And I've always remembered it because I thought, well, that's that's actually right. And, and I'm very comfortable in that space. Whereas if you have people who go internationally into disaster zones who don't have that high level of tolerance to ambiguity, it's it's not going to be a good fit. They're going to fret. They're going to be concerned that things aren't going well. And it's about doing what you can, at that moment to the best you know you're not going to fix everything but it's about doing your your little your little bit as much as you can
0: so it sounds like a tolerance to ambiguity is a core kpi for those looking to lead in the international disaster recovery space
1: you have to be comfortable with that and the stresses that um occurs i had a situation in um and i still remember it, it was at the Padang earthquake and we were packing up the government had actually said that the rescue phase was over and it was into body recovery so that's a r- real line in the sand for a government because basically they're saying there's nobody else alive in aid. so therefore they want the community to be able to move on that's a really important part because until you say all the rescues have been performed the community can't move on and the dang earthquake had about 1200 people killed and about 100 000 buildings knocked down but Right at the very end, I got a phone call from the, the coordination office, which was that the UN was running it, saying that they had a message from the basement of the Amber Chang Hotel, uh, which was a, a big hotel in Padang. It had a lot of foreigners there. And the person, 19 years old, she was trapped on the second level. So you do get these messages that you have to validate, but this one was a bit different because they knew the name and then Anyway, we were deployed out there. So this building, though, was being demolished. There was uh, an Army General there, a TNI General there, and they were using heavy machinery to knock down the, the remainder of the building. And So it was extremely unstable and to recover the bodies. Now, you also had about three or 400 families across the road waiting to collect the bodies of their you know, their families and their loved ones. So it was a very intense Period. And I went up and approached the general and, and sort of said we had this information. That was his decision. This is not my decision. Mm. If it was in Australia, it's my decision. So it was about trying to convince him to stop demolishing the building so we could go in and, and fact-check whether or not there was somebody in there. Mm. Uh, and he was extremely against that because, again, you've got hundreds of people there um, yeah. waiting You've got the government who said there is nobody alive, so therefore it's why we're tearing down the buildings. And there I am saying, oh, actually, I've got this this message. So he eventually gave me 30 minutes, and, and he said, I give you 30 minutes. And I still remember it. He said, if you don't find anyone, I am very, very happy. If you find someone alive, I am very, very happy. But if you tell me someone is alive and they are not, then I'm very, very unhappy. Mm. And it was, it was almost a, it was almost a kind of a, you know, it was almost a veiled uh, threat because it was, you know, very powerful. Mm. So Mm. I got that approval, but then I was faced with sending some people into this structure that was incredibly unstable. I mean, really unstable that could collapse at any time to try and fact check whether or not there was an individual in there um you know so they could go in and use listening devices and i was suddenly confronted with this i've done all this work to get approval for this but now i'm not sure i actually wanted to to do it so mm. and there were literally thousands of people all standing around and tv cameras and it was a really really difficult so that was that whole leadership different context how do I manage this, how do I, I then, you know, obviously had to share that information with the people who were going to go into that building, mm. um, you know, the difficulty and how unstable and how unsafe it is and, and they did go in, fortunately the building didn't collapse, there was nobody and it was a hoax of some sort and we moved on from there. But it's they're real what-it moments and there's no rule books for a lot of these decisions. And leadership's a little bit like that in a lot of cases.
0: It is and, and it's just so different because your leadership journey has been within that framework of Fire and Emergency Services Disaster Recovery. You won't have the layperson's lens, which I have. So as you're telling me that story, I'm just horrified, thinking, oh, wow, now that's ambiguity. And being faced in an international setting with all of the factors that you explained and described, to have to make a decision like that, yes, you would have to have a really good grounding in your own self and your own values and your own sense of how you're going to manage this.
1: Yeah, it it is very much, but the, but working overseas is is massively satisfying. I, I think to a, to a certain extent, uh, and the most important thing is just if you're not too sure, just if you just respect is probably the number one thing I could ever encourage people if they're in a um if they're in a, a foreign situation or they're in a you know embedded in another culture with different norms. You you can't go wrong if you're just respectful, and that goes right across the board. Uh, and we talk about command control and you know communications but probably the which people often talk about C3 or C2 but but it's the extra one it's the other C it's the collaboration that's really important I think and um, every agency and every leader has a right to be to be heard and to whether you're home or whether you're overseas um, that's probably the key I think.
0: You talk about collaboration in these highly interdependent multicultural disaster recovery spaces. If you're taking the lead role, how do you establish yourself when your teams are recovery experts from different countries around the world?
1: It's about communication and you really must trust in your own team and you've got to be trusted by your team. Most importantly, you've got to communicate well. It's almost like a core skill and right across leadership in any situation. That ability, that situational awareness of how and when to communicate, what's the right vehicle, how you... How you talk to people, uh, whether it's that autocratic, I need you to do this now, or when you're having a, a cup of tea with a, with a local governor, um, it's, it all comes back down with to respect and, and communication, but, and understanding the, the different views. And I, I think that you're there to manage a situation, so there, there actually is a problem. So, you know, it's not a democratic situation. You're not going to run a committee to make a decision either. So what you are going to do though is you've got to lead but maintain that input. So it's, it's still manage, still be the boss, still lead, but you've got to have that input from from your team and and respect that because that's they're going to see things that you can't.
0: John, can we move forward from your early deployments in those disaster recovery spaces? to your later work where you got involved in INSAG and you've been mentoring and training. Could you talk more about that?
1: Yeah, that's a it's a really interesting area. Um, so a little bit of background. There are a number of massive earthquakes quite a number of years ago in Bam and Iran and Mexico City, and it literally killed tens of thousands of people. And the support poured over the borders from various countries, and tried to do their very best to to help the local population. Essentially it was an unmitigated disaster in that there were whole areas that were never searched properly and there were areas that were searched multiple times. You had self-responders who turned up who then became more of a drag on on an already devastated population because they didn't have food or water and they needed support. It was so bad that it reached the UN. They passed a resolution that basically said for countries to have a standard suite or a standard set so that they could um, meet certain standards so that they could be deployed to emergencies. So what it means is various countries go through this assessment and they get their accreditation, their classification it's called, and therefore everybody knows that Australian team can work with a Japanese team, can work with a Russian team, can work. So everybody uses the same terminology and the same approach. One of those roles to bring a country up to meet those standards is a is, is mentor and I've been very lucky and I've been asked to mentor a number of different countries before. Every country is so different but also so very similar and whether it's a, a Middle Eastern country or an Asian country or a Western country, the average person is so similar. They all want to do the right thing by their own team, they want to help people, they want to learn. They want to save lives. So in a lot of ways, while it worked across many different cultures, there's a lot of similarities. Emergency operations, disaster operations, or, you know, humanitarian support is also quite often used as a way to ease international um, tensions. So if you've got countries that are perhaps not on the best of terms, something happens in one country. It's a very honourable thing to be able to send aid. Nobody's going to argue about sending aid. It's a thing to do. So it can become almost a default foreign affairs tool to a certain extent. So I'm very conscious of that when I'm working across borders. By and large, it's about understanding that different countries have different governments and and different budgets. And in a lot of cases, the, the tools are different in some Teams are extremely poor, some countries are, are still developing, but it's about recognising what they can do with what they've got.
0: So, what have you found in terms of working across so many countries now, mentoring across so many countries, what have you found to be the greatest challenges?
1: Um, The greatest challenges, I I mean, there's always challenges with politics to a certain extent. Now, whether that's little P or big P politics coming in during a disaster or an operation, for whatever reason, whether it's to get it. tour of the site or to visit or to meet and greet or shake hands. It's an interruption at the tactical level, but I also understand how important that is for the leadership of a country to show their support, to show their interest to the community. So, so that's one of the challenges that you often have trying to lead or trying to communicate that down to your rescuers who, who might have to delay doing some work while the, the local governor comes to visit or the president or the prime minister. When you're working during operations and people get tired, anger is always just a very small distance away. It take much to set people off. And an unkind word, particularly overseas, can undo years of development and years of relationship building. So it's an ongoing caution that while you might be sensitive to it, that one of the you know one of the the team may not necessarily understand the whole context and very tired and say something that it's not necessarily to your advantage. So, it comes a little bit down to that emotional intelligence side of things. So, I'm very conscious of understanding as much as we can, key individuals, emotional intelligence, what's going to make them tick and what's not. But, you know, honesty, competency, forward-looking, all of those standard sort of traits of a good leadership is really important. Before we do deploy, we we get we have a cultural briefing for all the team members, so they get a, a good understanding. But... But again, it's, it's more than that. Once you're embedded there, then there's a whole lot of different factors. And I mean, an interesting one is we have a position that when the base of operations is finished, when we've finished deployment, that we leave the site as good or if not better than what we found it. So we had a large amount of trash left over. We contracted a local rubbish removal of people. You know, there was no credit card. So it's all, all by cash. So we contracted them to come in and to remove the trash. So they came in. We paid them. They loaded onto their truck and then, in front of our eyes, drove across the road to the canal and then oh, just no. tipped, tipped it all <laughs> into the canal. <laughs> so, so, so there's all this a lot of this waste floating down the oh. down the canal. So, yeah, it's it's that kind of context. Is while well, you might get a briefing on you know what's acceptable behaviour and, and what's not there are a million and one little anomalies that you've got to be you've got to be constantly aware of.
0: So for people who are listening to the podcast and are on leadership journeys in that emergency disaster recovery or have an eye to getting into that space, what advice would you give them in terms of becoming engaged at some stage in international uh, disaster recovery deployments?
1: I think if you want to get into the, in that sort of space is reputation and your willingness to contribute and to have a smile on your face and do dirty work as well as the clean work and reputation is a, is a very big thing. It's not a big group of people whether it's through Red Cross or whether it's through DFAT or whether it's through, you know, a number of NGOs who cross borders to go to these sorts of disasters, so people get to know who's who. So uh, I think you've got to enjoy working with people, be prepared to volunteer. It's not just about pay or wages or double time, it's about uh, really wanting to be part of this this sector. I'd recommend that you put yourself out there to take opportunities when they come out and not just take opportunities when they come your way, but actually actively seek out opportunities. It is an industry that's, as I said, is, is quite small, but it's always on the lookout for good people who are who are interested. A lot of ex-military people uh, who have done a number of deployments from a military perspective uh, want to get into this sort of area as well. You know, Army Reserve, SES, Rural Fire Service, all of those volunteer organisations will give you a good foundation.
0: And John, for people wanting to further their leadership journey within fire and emergency services, what are some of the things that people could be doing there?
1: Emergency services, they're not what they used to be. They're, they're no longer above criticism. Major critical incidents, you know, will receive a lot of media and political attention. Everything that we do gets critiqued. So we have to modernize the organization and continue to be relevant. So I would say people need to maintain lifelong learning uh, approach. You must keep critiquing how you do things. You must keep current. You really do need to have tertiary qualifications these days not because you needed a degree to do a certain job, but it sends the message that you've got a broader understanding of all the various things that impact you on a day-to-day basis in a complex society, and you've got an understanding of what that means. This was my old chief officer said, son, you're not in charge of happiness, which is is quite true, which I I sometimes think that's quite true. Um, There is a, a level where, you're not in charge of everybody's happiness. You have to do what you think is right and what's in the best interest for as many partners and, and sectors and people as you possibly can. Um, that's what we, you know, we try and do. But ultimately you are going to have people who are, who are not necessarily, um, happy with you. So you also got to be quite comfortable that, that there will be people who disagree with you or who don't like you, mm. or who, you know, want to, um, you know, talk about you behind your back. And you do have to be a bit a bit resilient in, in that in that space.
0: Yeah, and that speaks to the role of mentors, doesn't it, in successful leadership careers? We haven't touched on your own career in terms of mentors and the presence of informal or formal mentors. Can you share some of the insights about the role mentors have played in your career?
1: I've always had a bit of a mentor, but in fact, I've always had. Three different ones. I, I've always had a mentor internally, somebody who, uh, who was above me, who I, I would respect. I always had somebody external that I would run things by. And then I also had peer level. Um, and whether you call them mentors or just a like minded group of individuals or, you know, people similar, you know, similar levels, that you would have phone calls sometimes where you're saying, hey, I want to run this by you. This is what I'm thinking about doing, um, you know, What do you reckon? And I think it's such a powerful thing for a leader to do because you get a bit of validation in your... Leaders are not infallible. You question your own um, decision-making, you you question your own biases, you question am I doing the right thing for either the community and taxpayers or am I doing the right thing by staff or volunteers. So I think it's a really important point too.
0: So that um, objective-sounding board.
1: Mm, Don't surround yourself with, you know, yes people. Uh, is really really important. You you have to have people who will talk to you honestly and give you some you know genuine feedback. Now that becomes really difficult, I think, for some people. So the other part of it is about keeping a sense of humour, and it's not about not taking things seriously, and it's it's not about being flippant. But it is about keeping a smile on your face, even when you run something by somebody and they go, oh, John, are you an idiot? (laughs) You know, can't you see blah, blah, blah? And and you take that on and, and, and the more you smile and enjoy that interaction without being locked into the decision, I think it helps you move along in that space.
0: That's a really great takeaway, I think, because the ability to take feedback and then Reflect on it or go and double-check them, but uh, not to react is a really important thing.
1: And that that is a really good point because sometimes, particularly if you have put in a great deal of effort into a thing, that you get quite protective. And and, and as you get higher in the the position, it becomes a redirection or feedback back to the manager of a particular project who's extremely dedicated and has put in 60 hours a week to get this project up and running Mm. and and has massive ownership and you've got to try and go you know you need to you need to move it in this way or or the other so you know you can get quite hurt
0: and that's putting the old ego aside and it's very hard
1: yeah absolutely absolutely
0: so john there's one last question i want to ask you you've been very generous with your time and your expertise. But in hindsight, if you could be sitting in front of 25-year-old John Corkett and you know the journey that's ahead of him, he doesn't, what words of advice would you give to the young John Corkett?
1: Oh, I've I've made as many mistakes as you could possibly imagine (laughs) at at 25. and There's a whole range of things that I would probably tell myself. Unfortunately, when you're 25, you don't listen as much as you, you you should. So the number one thing would be to listen and to listen very, very carefully. Just because uh, you don't agree with it doesn't mean that the, it's not valid. I'd say uh, what you just mentioned a minute ago, you've got to leave your ego or keep your ego in check. There's nothing wrong with a healthy ego because it drives yourself to improve or to be a little bit ambitious, but it's very easy for that to become a negative for you. So I think understand that politics is inherently in everything that we do. And I remember an ex-police commissioner, Bob Atkinson, uh, he addressed us and he was saying, who dislikes having to operate in politics? And everybody put their hand up and he said, well, I get a bit sick of that. He said, politics comes from the word poly, which is a Latin word for good order. And He said, every single one of you who's been involved in a PNC or a football club or a local social club is involved in, in politics. And if you really think that you're going to be a good police officer or a good firefighter or a good public servant without understanding and working with politics, you're, you're in the wrong game and you probably shouldn't be here. So, And I hear that frequently about, oh, I hate the politics. Really, what we're saying is we hate the interference into doing what we want to do, but the reality is without politics, little P or big P politics, would be heading off in, you know, John Corkett's direction as opposed to the community or, or the government's direction. Understand the politics, keep your ego in check, listen and, and work on your, your communications.
0: Great takeaways to round out our podcast today, John. Thank you for traversing your career with us, sharing the highlights, complexities, challenges and insights from your career both here and overseas. You've been incredibly generous with your time and I know listeners on their own journeys will have derived value from today's episode. Thanks again, John. No,
1: thank you, Penny. I'm delighted to to talk to you and I appreciate the opportunity to have a chat with you today.
0: If you would like a resource to help you map out a pathway to leadership or if you're looking for support to take your career to the next level, head on over to my website whatleadersknow.com where you'll be able to download the resource along with the show notes from today's episode. I look forward to your company next week when we'll be joined by another successful leader who'll share their journey to leadership with us. Until then, happy days and stay safe. I'm Penny Beeston and this has been What Leaders Know you